Uh, we are excited to continue our Reformation Lecture Series this morning with our guest speaker, Dr. Carl Ellis. Over the last four plus decades, Carl has served Christ and his kingdom in a number of capacities. He served as a campus minister, an assistant pastor. He's been faculty at Chesapeake Theological Seminary, an instructor for prison fellowship, the dean of intercultural studies at Westminster Theological uh, Seminary, um, served as, as an associate pastor at New City Fellowship. He studied under Francis Schaeffer and has graduate degrees from Westminster Theological Seminary and Oxford College. Currently, he is serving as the assistant to the chancellor, the senior fellow of the African American Leadership Institute, and the provost professor of theology and culture at Reformed Theological Seminary. He and his wife, Karen, have been good and gracious friends of Covenant College, and it's our privilege to welcome him here this morning. Please give a warm Scots welcome to Dr. Carl Ellis. Thank you for that warm welcome. Uh, I appreciate the fact that you, uh, I know my wife is really uh, very popular around these parts, and uh, I guess uh, Covenant invited me so I won't feel left out, right? <laughs> All right, um, I want us to do some thinking about uh, uh, some thoughts around Amos chapter eight, verses one through six, and uh, chapter nine, verse seven. And I want to kind of tie that into a theme of where we need to go from here in terms of uh, our direction and what God is leading us to. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs of the temple will, will turn to wailing, many bodies flung everywhere, silence. Hear this, you who trample, trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the moon, new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath ended that we may market wheat? Skimping the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. And then verse nine, I mean chapter nine, verse seven. Are not you Israelites the same to me as Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt and the Philistines from Kephir and the Arameans from Kerr? Don't forget what you were chosen for. When we think back on the, the Reformation and we, and, we, and we can praise God for the fact that, uh, that, that people like Luther and Calvin uh, liberated the salvific truth of the Bible from all that junk of tradition that had been, that had been heaped upon it. But it's not enough to remember the Reformation back then. You know, that was Reformation 1.0. We have to also think about Reformation 2.0. If the original Reformation was that, was concerned itself with the salvific concerns, then the new Reformation should concern itself with doxological concerns. Salvific, pertaining to salvation, doxological, seeking to bring glory to God. 
That's what's missing in the church today. And I think this is what God is speaking to here in Amos. Amos prophesied during the 8th century B.C. But during this century, a new kind of prophet arose. So back in those days, there was a kind of a, of a, of a reformation. And Amos was one of these emerging prophets. Up to this time, there were what the scholars call ecstatic prophets. And the early ecstatic prophets were in the tradition of great prophets like Samuel and Elijah. And they prophesied with music. If you're familiar with your Bible, you can look in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 15 and following. And you'll see a situation where King Jehoshaphat asked Elisha to come and, and give a prophecy about a coming battle. And he said, well, I can't do it. He says, why? Because I don't have any music, man. You've got to give me, some, give me a track. <laughs> so, so the harpist came in and started playing, and then he began to prophesy. These ecstatic prophets lived on the free will offerings of the people. However, by the time of Amos, though, the ecstatic prophetic tradition had become an ossified institution. And if we're not careful, that always tends to happen. We can become ossified, we become hardened, we become routine, we become ho-hum. And the ecstatic prophets were milking the tradition for all they could get. By the time of Amos, they had formed prophets' unions. They had standardized fees. If you want a positive prophecy, that'll be $1,000. If you want a negative one, I'll give, I get, it, get it to you for $500. They were being paid by the federal government. They sat around the king's throne in their prophet's uniform, and they gave lip service to the corrupt government unjust policies. In other words, these prophets forgot what they were chosen for. And this is why God raised up a new kind of prophet. The scholars referred to these new emerging prophets as classical prophets or poetic prophets. I refer to them as spoken word prophets because they had the poetic power like some of today's hip-hop artists. And other spoken word prophets include, included people that you're familiar with, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And through them, believe it or not, the name of God was pro proclaimed among the nations, and they were the most potent moral force the world had ever seen. They profoundly influenced events as far away as Greece, China, India, and Persia. And in the time of Amos, Israel was decaying from within. And God had chosen them to be a light to the nations through righteousness and justice. Now, righteousness is a covenantal term. It's a relational term. It means simply doing right by the other party in the covenant. And of course, how do you know what, what right is, right? It's all, it all comes from the character of God. And there are two dimensions of righteousness that we can talk about this morning. One is piety, doing right by God. This involves devotion and ceremony. We are doing piety right now by being in chapel. But there's another dimension of righteousness that we often forget about. That's the other side. That's, okay, if piety is 1.0, then this other one is 2.0, and that is justice. Justice means doing right by people. It's, it's the old um, 
uh, Jubilee Principle, Leviticus 25.10. It involves liberation and empowerment. But the Israelites had neglected what they had been chosen for. They were in need of reformation. They didn't care about proclaiming God's name among the nations. They didn't even care about doing justice at home. Instead, they worshiped idols, which led to decadence. They wallowed in that decadence. As a matter of fact, God told them that they were as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. That's pretty bad. Now, a lot of you, pictures come to your mind if I say Sodom and Gomorrah. The question is, why did God nuke Sodom and Gomorrah? Okay? <laughs> now, before you get too far, sometimes it's good to check the Bible on things, right? Let me give you the stated reasons why God nuked Sodom and Gomorrah. It's right here in Ezekiel 16, verses 49 through 50. And this is what God says. He says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Okay, now he says, y'all just like sisters, right? Your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, and by the way, who are the daughters of Sodom? Who would be the daughters of Sodom? It took me a while to figure this out. The daughters of Sodom were the surrounding suburbs. They were all part of the same system. She and her daughters, and here it is now, here's why God nuked them. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things, things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. You see that? This is where Jerusalem was. This is where Israel was. They oppressed others to satisfy their need. Indeed, they had forgotten what they were chosen for. Meanwhile, the traditional ecstatic prophets continue to give their blessing to this unjust situation and the unjust status quo. So now you get the picture of why God was not too pleased with them when he addressed Amos in a chapter 8. What do you see, Amos? Summer fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said, the end has come for my people Israel. Here is a pun. This is one of the reasons why I call Amos and other prophets like that spoken word prophets. He was using a pun. God was using a pun. Summer fruit in Hebrew is the word kais. And the end is the word kes. Summer fruit was associated with joy and prosperity, and now it was a mockery. The promise of summer fruit had become a guarantee of Israel's destruction. It was not summer fruit, Caius has come for Israel, but the end, Kes has come for Israel. The joyous hymns in the temple were, would be replaced by wheeling in the streets, and you heard the scripture, many bodies flung everywhere, silence. In other words, what Israel was doing is that they were playing church. And the church games would abruptly come to an end. Now, why was God so upset about this? It was because they had contempt for the things of God. You know, a lot of times we come to the point where we take God's blessings for granted and not for grace. I mean, you know, when you think about the bottom line, I don't know if you've ever thought about why do bad things happen to good people? You know, if God is so good, why is there suffering in the world? But if you were to see it from the right perspective, 
if God was going to be fair with everybody, then we'd all be in the lake of fire. So anything short of that is grace. Hello. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not wishing any of us go there, but anyway. But not only did they have contempt for the things of God, but they were preoccupied with what we used to call bling. And if you're really old, you would say bling bling, right? All right. For example, the businessmen couldn't wait till the holy days were over so they can get back to pursuing greed, shortchanging their customers, raising prices without a cause, mixing dirt or the sweepings with the wheat to increase the weight. Their God was money and their creed was get rich at any cost. Now, how did the religious establishment respond to this? The priests were strangely silent on the issue. The traditional ecstatic prophets were strangely silent on the issue. And the silence of the religious establishment gave those who were oppressed the impression that God was on the side of their oppressors and that God himself was their oppressor. I do a lot of work with people in the hood. And it's a funny thing, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, one, of my, one of the things that I'm most passionate about is apologetics. And all the apologetics I learned is how to defeat atheism and agnosticism. I go to the hood, I don't, I don't run into atheists. Everybody knows God is there. But a lot of folks are angry because they have the wrong impression of God. It's like they haven't been unreached, they have been disreached. And, uh, and that's what was happening with the, with the religious establishment. Reformation 1.0, getting our doctrine straight is a great thing. Don't get me wrong. But we need to go to 2.0. We got to go from, we got to go start, you know, we, we have great stuff in our Reformed tradition about what we should know about God. But we must move on to how we should obey God without neglecting what we should know about God. 2.0. They didn't think it was necessary to be concerned about ministry and justice. Because, you know why? They thought that God had chosen them because they were Israelites. Nothing could be further from the truth. They should have been Israelites because God had chosen them. To be an Israelite was a response to God's grace. It wasn't what caused God's grace. They didn't think it was necessary to be involved in missions. In the Old Testament, here's the interesting thing. In the Old Testament, they didn't have to go anywhere. All they had to do was stay home, be the people of God, and God would bring the nations to them. But they wouldn't even do that. God had repeatedly told them that membership in his kingdom was a matter of grace. But Israel insisted that it was a matter of race. They thought they were saved by their pedigree. They confused the Canaanites with the nations. When they came to the promised land, they were not to mingle with the Canaanites, but they did. Once the Canaanites were conquered, they were to welcome the nations who wanted to worship God, but they didn't. They reversed kingdom behavior with their traditions, and in the end, instead of being God's open international people, they became a closed Hebrew holy huddle. In other words, they forgot what they were chosen for. I think this has a lot of implications as we look at it, as we think back on what happened and look forward to what is going to happen. 
God has chosen us to proclaim his, his, his name among the nations. Through cultural engagement. Now, God's covenant name is not just Yahweh. When we talk about the name of God, we're not talking about a title here. We're talking about who God is. It includes who he is towards us. Listen to God himself as he pronounces his name to Moses. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not let the guilty go unpunished. All of that is his name. And his name is wonderful. And we live by that name, and we are called by that name. Again, as David contemplates on the covenant name of God, listen to him in Psalm 103. Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us according to, uh, he does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. What a name. What a name. What a, what a name. This should always lead us to seek Reformation 2.0, 3.0, What it means to proclaim God's name internationally, it means missions. At home, it means ministry. If we can't be involved in missions over there, we should be involved in ministry over here. And don't think when I say ministry, I'm talking about being a preacher. I'm not talking about that. Whatever you do in life, whether you are an accountant, a public servant, or whatever, that should be ministry. You should do it because you serve God. God has chosen us to be a prophetic voice of righteousness to the whole wide world. And now we come to Amos chapter 9. Are you... Are not you Israelites the same to me as Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt and the Philistines from Catfer and the Arameans from Kerr? Cush. It's about where Ethiopia is today. The Israelites considered Cush to be unimportant to the world, marginalized, of no, of no consequence, unimportant to God, insignificant. The Israelites considered themselves to be the most important nation in the world, the most important name to God. In other words, they were Judeocentric. But God said clearly here that the Cushites were just as important as they were, and this was a shock to Israel. You know, I shared, I was in Washington, D.C. not too long ago, and uh, I was sharing about some people who are churchable. You know, we, t we talk about people who are churched and unchurched, but 
I was a, an unchurchable. I happened to have been aller allergic to church culture. I just could not take it. I mean, uh, you know, I had to go to church when I was a kid, and it just like, sounded like chalk squeaking on, squeaking on a board. That's how, that's how it drove me up a wall. I couldn't take it. I hated it. But I wanted to know God. I, I toyed with Islam and a few other things. But I finally met some other unchurchables like me who had encountered God, and they, they showed, shared the gospel with me in my own language. And when I talk about rethinking things, I'm saying that we need to come to the point where we recognize that not everybody can fit into our traditions. I have a thing about unchurchables today. But anyway, that's for another discussion. You see, the Israelites here were even in for more disturbing news. They thought their history was the only history where God was at work, because they could point to the Red Sea crossing and all the rest of that. But God made it clear that he was at work in the history of the Philistines. The what? The Philistines! They were the bad guys. And yet, God said in this passage, he exercised his lordship over their migration from the island of Crete to Palestine. And he was also at work in the history of the Arameans or the, or the, or, or the Syrians. He exercised his lordship over their migration from Catfer to where they were at the time. And this was a shock to Israel. The Israelites thought they had an exclusive on God's involvement, but God was telling them that he exercises intimate sovereignty over all nations. Israel had to learn that God's intimate sovereignty did not give them a license to presume on God's holiness, to practice economic injustice against the poor, to practice social injustice against the powerless, to neglect their God-given missions and ministry opportunities. Whatever you do in life, it should be ministry. As God brought forth a new kind of prophet, so God would bring forth a new kind of Israel. And we are the beneficiaries of God doing something new. That new kind of Israel is called the church. But that's many years ago. Today, in many ways, the American church has slipped into a similar mentality that Israel had in the 8th century B.C. We are concerned, we concern ourselves with things that we consider very important, and they might be important, but the question is, how fervently do we seek to discover what God has chosen us for? It's not enough to celebrate Reformation 500 years ago. And that's a good thing, don't get me wrong. But we got to be about what does it mean to be reformational today? God is calling us to proclaim his name among the nations through justice for the victims of injustice, empowerment for the powerless, cultural engagement internationally by way of missions, and cultural engagement at home by way of ministries. And if God is so concerned about such matters, then why are we so strangely silent about them? Did God choose us because we are Christians? Or are we Christians because God chose us? 
Of course, we know the answer conceptually, but the question is, do we know the answer operationally? I suspect that we might resemble Israel in the time of Amos. But that doesn't mean that God can't fix us. Truly, we have great traditions. But God calls us not to just repeat traditions. He calls us to follow him as he does new and exciting things in this generation. And the question we must ask ourselves is, will we too be caught off guard if God raises up a new kind of church? I'm starting to see this in places where I work. And these folks who are gathering around to hear the word of God, I mean, they're gangsters, they're this and they're that, but they're starting to love Jesus. And they would never be welcomed in our churches today. Something new is going on. Be open-minded. Reformation 2.0. Will we be shocked if God shows us that, he, that we are not the only ones he is involved with? There has never been a better time for us to rediscover what God has chosen us for, especially in the area of missions internationally and missions at home, ministry at home. There has never been a more strategic time for us to rediscover the fullness of the gospel as it relates to today's issues. When I was in seminary, they taught me well how to refute the doctrine of the sacerdotalist. If you're a sacerdotalist, you won't last for 49 seconds with me. But you know what? I've never met a sacerdotalist. <laughs> My problem isn't that. My problem is the black Hebrew Israelites. That's, that's my problem. You got me? There's some new things going on out there. Open your eyes. See what God is showing you. And see what God is doing in the world. And you know, if we miss this great challenge, like so many of us are already, God will still have compassion on us. Don't worry. Oh, we'll still have our private insurance, you know, our private salvation. Yeah, we'll have all that. But our sense of direction will be gone. Our sense of calling will have evaporate, or evaporated, and our sense of adventure will have turned to boredom. It'll just be ho-hum, church-going folk, not recognizing what God is doing today. Let God expand your mind. Let God open your schemas as to what new things he is doing. And, for, and most of all, let us never forget what God has chosen us for. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the challenge of your word. And we pray that you will make us seekers of you and not just those who are sitting around saved and satisfied. The issue today for us is not so much salvation, but your glory. We have done a t terrible job of that, Lord. We thank you for those in the past who opened and made plain your message of salvation. But Lord, let us today 
be manifestations of your message of glory. And we'll be careful to give you that glory in Jesus' name.